I'm Maggie Snowling and I'm the president of the college and today I'm talking to Dr Caroline Larrington who is fellow in medieval English literature. So hello. Hello. <laughs> um, first of all I'm really intrigued to ask you how you became interested in medieval uh, literature. I can understand someone becoming interested in English literature but why medieval English literature? I became interested in medieval literature I think because at heart in many ways I'm a linguist and so I was I'm um, always interested in different languages and when I started studying English at Oxford I talked to Old English with enthusiasm because it was quite similar to German which I spoke already and so that dragged me into the, the medieval end of literary study. Mm. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that, so um, you obviously need a lot of language expertise to be a specialist in, in medieval literature. Yes, so well, I had French and German already from school, but I worked in Norway in my gap year before I came up to Oxford, and so I acquired some Norwegian then. And that's been the basis of my understanding of Scandinavian languages, and that's obviously turned out to be very important. Mm -hmm. And in terms of medieval sort of studies in general, do you also need to know a lot about the history of the period? Yes, it's certainly important to have a sense of the changing history of both of Anglo-Saxon England and of the medieval period from after the conquest all the way through to 1550, which is more or less when the, the period stops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just a very naive question, what exactly is the medieval period? From, from What are the dates? I mean, well, it begins with the earliest Old English literature, and the best evidence we have for that is probably around about 730, when we have a hymn um, originally recorded in Latin, but with a more or less contemporary Old English translation in some of the manuscripts. And it goes forward to somewhere around about the beginning of um, Edward VI's reign. Um, some people would say that the medieval period stopped in 1509 when Henry VIII comes to the throne. And um, there's a very marked change in the language occurring at that point. There's the shift from Middle English into Early Modern English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what, what, so, so tell me a little bit more about that shift because I'm quite interested in language. And, and Well, it seems as if over about 50 years or so, um, the vowels of English all moved around in the mouth and some of them diphthongized and um, became much more recognisably the vowels that we know today. And some of the consonants, so instead of saying knight, we now say knight, and that, that occurred around that time as well, some simplification of consonant groups. If we heard someone talking, would we still understand the canice um, and I Well, I think I find if I read Chaucer out to people who don't know anything about Middle English, they understand it much better than if they look at it on the written page. And I think Shakespeare in English is, is not so difficult to understand, though still it's rather different from what you would hear if you went to a, a play at Stratford. Okay, so but this is quite a long period in, in history then. Um, what, what, is there a particular um, uh, era that you're focusing on, that you focus on? Or? Um, my research interests are broadly fall into two camps. And one is Arthurian literature, and I'm interested in that from about 1130 through to 14, well, the end of the 15th century. And I look at Arthurian texts across European literature, so it's not just English but also French and um, in fact at the moment I'm looking at some Old Norse translations of King Arthur as well. And my other big research interest is in Icelandic literature from the medieval period. Mm -hmm. Mm 
So what, what can, say, thinking about the Arthurian um, literature, um, what, what can it tell us? I mean, what, what's the kind of thesis? I mean, what are you, what are you looking for? Well, I've been looking for different things. In that the last book that I wrote was about the figure of the enchantress in um, medieval Arthurian story. And what I, I argue that I uncovered there was a, a sense in which the enchantress is neither wholly good nor wholly bad, but someone who sort of situates herself outside chivalric culture. And because she's learned, because she knows how to read and write, and she has occult forms of knowledge, she asks questions about how chivalry is supposed to function and, and quite probing questions about masculinity. So there are all kinds of questions which can be answered from Arthurian literature. At the moment, I'm uh, editing a book on Arthurian emotion in particular, and we're looking at the ways in which emotions in the medieval period are represented in different Arthurian texts, again, across European literature. So we have a sense of how emotion might be structured within Old Norse or within Middle English or French and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, the, the change in the way in which emotions express, that's quite an interesting um, notion. I mean, how do, you, uh, how do you get at that? I mean, can you say a little bit about how emotions constructed in, just give us some examples? Well, I suppose um, the, the paper that I'm giving in Oslo um, the day after tomorrow, uh, I'm looking in the first instance at the translation of a, a French text into Old Norse. And it's a text which has some emotional crises in it. And the French is very much more um, fluent about how people feel. It tells you what they're thinking. It tells you what they feel. The Icelandic text tells you much less about what people are thinking but it's, it's quite attentive to what might be going through somebody's mind or what an audience would assume is making. For example, King Arthur is rather upset because a strange knight has barged into his hall, stolen his drinking cup, poured the contents over his wife and has ridden out again. And in the French, Arthur is more or less says, well, you know, I'm man enough that I'm not so concerned about this person, but my wife is upset, I'm afraid she might die. And the, the Norse translator clearly thinks the idea of a woman dying because somebody threw a cup of wine over her is ridiculous. But the king says rather more clearly, I don't know what to do at this point. Obviously, I'm not afraid of this person, but I'm puzzled as to how I should react. And to me, that seems as if the old Norse text is much more interested in analysing what's an appropriate social response for the king under those circumstances, and less worried about how he feels, and certainly much less worried about how the queen feels. Mm -hmm. So can you, you kind of track social trends as they change through, you know, through these texts? I mean, would, would there be times when people were more uh, inhibited about emotions, and would that be reflected in the text, or kind of symbolised in different ways? Or? Well, it's difficult really to say whether, how close these are to any particular actual real-world ways of behaving. Um, in the Icelandic sagas, uh, these are famously very objective in their um, narrative style. So you hear what people say, you see what people do, but the narrator doesn't usually tell you what they think or, or construe behaviour in an emotional way. But one of the things which I'm interested in finding out is whether the translation of these Arthurian texts with their rather different emotional world then feeds back into the Icelandic sagas 
and whether it then becomes possible to talk about love rather more explicitly. Mostly love between men, um, a sort of homosocial bond between uh, blood brothers, for example, not so much about love between men and women. But nevertheless, it also becomes possible a bit later in these rather objective sagas to talk about somebody dying of grief or talks about behaviour which you would construe as emotional, even if the narrator doesn't say, and he did this because he was so sad or because he was afraid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so tell us a bit more about the Icelandic uh, sagas. What, what, what do they comprise? Well, there's all sorts of different subgroups of sagas. And the most famous ones are the sagas of Icelanders, which are written in the 13th and 14th centuries, but they look back to a period around the settlement of Iceland from the late 9th century through to just after the conversion to Christianity at the beginning of the 11th century. At uh, the moment, uh, as well as looking at the Arthurian translations, I'm looking at a, a group of sagas called Fortnaldasurgur, or legendary sagas, which are also written in Iceland, but they refer to a time before the settlement, and they have kings and princesses and giants and trolls and, and so on in them. And they look as if they're sort of purely fantasy literature at some level, but in fact they are articulating some quite interesting things about um, the way in which Iceland could see itself in relation to Norway after it had lost its independence in the middle of the 13th century. So the way in which it thinks about those sagas think about kings becomes rather different, I think. Mm, very interesting. What language are they written in? They're written in Old Icelandic which is fairly similar to modern Icelandic. Mm -hmm. And it means that modern Icelanders can more or less read the, the sagas from getting on for a thousand years ago with only a modicum of glossing, sort of explaining obscure word for, uh, for an axe or something like that. Mm -hmm. So these are, are quite important um, historically. Um, did, have they kind of inspired others to, you know, the, if they had a, a major influence in, in literature? Or is it a kind of new, some new area that you're really looking at? Um, the sagas in general were very popular in England in the 19th century. And there's a wonderful book called The Vikings and the Victorians, which charts um, the kind of interest in Iceland and in saga literature in particular that inspired people like William Morris to go to Iceland and send a series of letters or write journals back. And earlier in the last century, uh, Auden and McNeese famously went to Iceland in 1939, I think it was, or no, 1936. And they also wrote a, a very amusing series of poems in a journal about their experience. Uh, the saga's been less influential most recently, I think, but what has been more influential, perhaps, is the poetry of Iceland, particularly the Eddic poetry, which is a, a simpler style than more complicated courtly poetry. And there, almost all that we know about mythological and heroic legends from the Old North are preserved in these poems, and they very strongly influence Tolkien. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is, you, you're doing a new project, as I understand it, on Eddic poetry. Yes, Eddic poetry has taken a bit of a backseat recently in um, Old Norse studies, because there have been some major initiatives on, on courtly poetry and on these Fortnalda Sergara, the legendary sagas. But uh, a group of us have decided it's time to look again at Eddic poetry, not just the, what's normally thought of as the main corpus of Eddic poetry, which is all contained in a single manuscript and which has been quite well studied over the years. But there's a whole lot of other poetry in the same kind of form, in the same kind of metre, 
with mythological and heroic subject matter, usually scattered across different sagas, so it's sort of embedded in the prose. And these are beginning to be re-edited now. So the, the question is arising, what do we do with this poetry now that we can look at it more clearly in its context? What will it tell us about Eddic poetry? What will it tell us about myth and, and the preservation of myth in, in post-Christian Iceland? And so those are the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking in the new project and asking archaeologists, historians of religion, um, people working in, in different areas of old Icelandic or um, Scandinavian history to tell us what they think those poems could tell us and what the questions are that we ought to be asking of them. Mm. So it's very interdisciplinary. Yes, yes. In, in, at the outset, it is. And in the workshop that we're going to be holding this summer, we're going to be asking um, the scholars from across a whole range of disciplines what needs to be done, essentially, and then see who's going to be doing it and how we can, we can take these things further forward. So would it be wrong to think this is a library project? Are you, are you actually going to go there and look at churches and whatever? I mean, I don't know how you would do this kind of thing. It, it, in a sense, it could be a library project, um, but it's deeply embedded in the manuscripts. So um, many of the manuscripts that we will be looking at are digitised, and so perhaps we don't have to stir from our college rooms to go and look at some of them. But even so, looking at a digital, digital version of a manuscript isn't the same as holding it in your hand. And so when I go to Iceland in July, I'm certainly going to be getting up some of the manuscripts which I'm interested in and feeling them, smelling them, looking at the, the pictures, looking at things which haven't yet been digitised and, and getting a sense not just of what they look like, but how these whole collections hang together in what, what sagas and what poems are put together in, in manuscripts and in what period. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Can we just perhaps focus in on a couple of the issues that I know you've um, had a lot of interest in? Um, one is gender, as I understand it, and one is um, sibling relationships. So mm. as a psychologist, I'm quite interested in both of these uh, uh, issues. So, I mean, can you say something about gender and how it's portrayed? I think you did mention something in relation to the Arthurian legends about gender. Um, well, I've been sort of consistently interested in gender um, ever since I finished my PhD, which wasn't a, a gender-oriented project particularly. And I was asked to edit what was called, then called the Feminist Companion to Mythology, though it was later reprinted as the Woman's Companion to Mythology, which tells us something about changing mores, I think. <laughs> and, and that was a, a very interesting project, looking at the way in which divinity is depicted in female form across a whole range of cultures. And that made me interested in feminist theory. And invited me to reread some of the Eddic poems, which we'll be coming back to again, in terms of how femininity and female figures are constructed in those poems. It's quite often the case that women are thought of as adjuncts to the male heroes, but in fact the figure of the Valkyrie, or the, the warrior maiden in particular, is both important and very suggestive in terms of not only the kind of agency that this sort of figure has, but also whether she embodies an idea about death as female in, in a masculinised warrior culture. Um, so th that's one of the, the lines of inquiry that I've been pursuing as far as gender is concerned. And as for the siblings, I'm just completing a book on sibling relationships in medieval European literature. 
and I've been looking at the, both the positives and the negatives of brothers' relationships with brothers and their relationships with their sisters and sisterly relationships, but also, very importantly, what happens when the spouse marries, sorry, the sibling marries, and you start having a spouse coming into the equation as well. And some of the, the most important medieval European literature of particular, I suppose, the 13th century really does revolve around brothers-in-law and the women who get caught between them and who's married to whom and, and competition within the a kind of new family environment which is formed when, when a sister gets married and she and her new husband don't move out of the, the family. So a new man is brought into the existing family setup. And the book also looks at fictive siblings, at blood brothers and foster brothers and uh, foster sisters as well, and looks at the ways in which those kinds of relationships are differently imagined from real relationships, as we, we might say. So sibling rivalry gets kind of embedded in the extended family in this, some of these scenarios. Yeah, very much, yeah, yeah. very much so, almost more so perhaps, because they're quite a, an important set of inhibitors about what you can do to eliminate your actual brother. And there's um, such a powerful social stigma to commit fratricide. But a brother-in-law is rather different, even though you've sworn lots of oaths, no doubt, to him that you're going to regard him as a brother. And he's been brought into the family through this sort of anthropologically important exchange of women. But yet sometimes it turns out that there could be a better looking husband than this one, the one who'd be more socially advantageous. So you need to get rid of this one and get a, a better husband for your sister. Sometimes, in fact, he's too good and he's outshining you in the various, um, various kinds of competition that go on between noble men. And then he, you find him threatening. And I suspect that quite a lot of sort of nursery sibling rivalry is then displaced onto these brother-in-law figures. And the same is, of course, true of, of sisters-in-law. Sisters generally tend to get on reasonably well in medieval literature, except when they're competing for a husband. But sisters-in-law don't have quite that kind of bond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds very like the modern-day stepfamily to me. Um, yes, mm. yeah, and I think... We tend to think of the modern-day step family as a sort of social innovation, but of course, in, in medieval historical times, as opposed to within the literature, um, families were just as blended because there was an extraordinary rate of attrition in terms of siblings dying, mothers dying in childbirth, new stepmothers coming along, blending families, trying to decide who was going to inherit from the, the father under the circumstances, and all complicated, of course, by primogeniture. So there are quite a few questions about step-siblings, what you owe to your half-brother, what you don't owe to him, um, what kinds of rivalries occur when you have two sets of children with two different mothers and a single father. And all of those get played out in literature in, in quite interesting and diverse ways. Mm. Mm. Are any of these um, legends and, and, and so on uh, dramatised? No, um, drama up until, uh, I suppose, the 1520s or so, tends to be religious drama in Europe. Um, so it's not until the later periods that you actually get um, dramatisations. And Wagner is a kind of case in point, I suppose, that um, the Ring of the Nibelungen is based on um, 
a series of Old Norse stories, which you also find in Middle High German, which very much depend on the relationship between brothers, sisters. Um, incest, of course, comes into it as well. And so, in some senses, Wagner um, picks up on something in those stories, which was very interesting for him in terms of German, German nationalism, but I think also in terms of other sort of um, more deeply psychic movements in late 19th century Germany, and examines them through this lens of these old stories, but he finds sort of persistent, universally interesting patterns in them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, thank you very much for talking to me. This has been fascinating. It's someone who's um, actually has relatively little time to read English literature, and but I have uh, very much enjoyed learning um, about the Icelandic sagas, both in this interview and in your recent radio interview. Um, and I uh, wish you all the best of luck with your new project on Eddic poetry. So I've been talking to Dr. Caroline Larrington. <laughs>